Hey guys, Joe Bonamassa here. Welcome to Live from Nerdville, presented by Graham Brulow. Today, my special guest is an old friend of mine, a legend, and a man who gave me a stage, advice, and friendship when not many people in the music business did. So please enjoy my conversation with the great George Thorogood. George, welcome. Thank you for doing this. It's an honor for me. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Joe, an, an honor. That's. I just dig hanging out with you, Joe. Always have. You know, know. No matter what the circumstances are. I know, and and thank you for being part of our Keeping the Blues Alive cruise. It's for a great cause. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be a, a, a super fun event next year. I'm looking forward to it. Um, you know, we've known each other a long time, and you you were so nice to me and so many others um, about giving us a stage and an audience and, 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 a, you know, place to play that, you know, I wouldn't be where I'm at. You know, I always say the two people that helped me the most in my career, George Theragood, BB King. It's a nice company, nice company, but, but you were always really supportive. I mean, you know, and I know you do this for other artists. It, it It's just the, the way you give back to the community is, is, is special and, and, and a testament to who you are. Well, you do the same thing, Joe. I mean, we wouldn't be hanging out all these years if uh, if I felt you were a creep or something, <laughs> which you're not, you know. No, so I... it's, it's always a pleasure to say, yeah, I know Joe Bonamassa. You know, he's uh, he's doing really good these days. And not that you won't always, but uh, Joe, let me tell you, cream rises to the top. With or without George Thurgood or B.B. King, Joe Bonamassa would have ended up where you are anyway. It, it helps when someone likes you and helps you. But a, a talent like yourself, you would have got there anyway. Well, well, thank you. And, and you know, in those years that we were touring together, I mean, I, I, there was no guarantees. And, and you're just going, I, I hope this is going to work out, you know. And, and, but, you know, you were, you were a big part of my story. And, and I, I don't thank you enough, but I do owe you a, a debt of gratitude for that. And for a song, by the way. Except You remember that gig we did in Anaheim? And you you were sound checking. You had an acoustic guitar, and and I walked in and you saw me, and I was the only person you know in the main floor of the House of Blues in Anaheim, and you were like over the mic. You go, "Hey Bonamassa, check this out," and you had like this kind of like Elmore James kind of riff, and and it it went like kind of went like, and I I was like. He's like, you're like, bet you can't do that. And I was like, let me go work on that. And then I wrote this song. I wrote this song called Woke Up Dreaming based on, based on oh, that, that riff. riff. So I thank you for the song, you know? It's actually a John Lee Hooker piece to begin with. Right, right. Yeah, so Sounds pretty good. You're one of the few people can do it with a flat pick. Matter of yeah. fact, you're one of the few people can do it at all. <laughs> <laughs> so... Tell me about the blues, how important that was for you growing up, because, you know, you were you were before it was the Del, George Thurgood and the Delaware Destroyers, the electric band. You 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 played solo gigs on on, you know, as you know, you're playing Robert Johnson kind of stuff and John Lee Hooker stuff by yourself. I mean, like where, you know, where did you first discover the blues? Actually, through the Rolling Stones, I was watching a television show Shindy. And I saw the Rolling Stones, who I was a big fan of, and they were they were just coming into their own as songwriters, and they pretty much were doing covers of rhythm and blue classics. 
which I, I didn't care one way or another. I just dug the way they sounded. I didn't care who wrote it. And right. they brought Howling Wolf on, who I had heard them talk about Howling Wolf through interviews and things. And I, I saw Brian Jones playing slide guitar. And unless I'm wrong, history says, Keith Richards said the first person that Mick Jagger and Keith Richards ever saw play slide guitar was Brian Jones. Right. The first person I ever saw play slide guitar was Brian Jones. So we at least got that in common. So that right. kind of, and I kind of ran with that and I started listening to this stuff. And then I started noticing that just about every contemporary rock band at that time had some kind of blues connection, you know, a blues song or and these names kept popping up like Muddy Waters and John Lee Hooker and Jimmy Reed and things like that. So I started collecting records about that and said, well, I, I thought if you want to, if you want to, you want to play like Brian Jones and Keith Richards, you got to listen to Hal and Wolf and Jimmy Reed. Okay. Right. If right. you want to play like, uh, you know, Johnny Winter, you got to listen to Muddy Waters. You know, that's just, it was just natural to me. And right. I said, well, that, that's the stuff, man. You know, not that I ever got to that point, but that's, I'm fond of saying, Joe, and, you, and you're right, right with me with this. Is, uh, I said, I didn't know, I didn't write the book. I memorized it. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and number two, I said, well, I know, at least I know I went to the right school. I said, Clapton and, and, and Jeff Beck and Elvin Bishop, they graduated with honors. I squeaked by with a C plus, <laughs> but at least I knew what school to go to. And so did you. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, and I always say it's, it's like my introduction to the blues was the British invasion. It was the Jeff Becks. Mm -hmm. It was, um, it was the, the Clapton's and Led Zeppelin's. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know, and again, you're like, who is Chester Burnett? Who yeah, is, right, right. Like who are, you know, and then, then you get into Albert Kings and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. a lot, my introduction to the blues, my introduction to Bo Diddley was through George Thorogood. Well, see, yeah. you, you got to hear it from somebody, you yeah. know, uh, generally that that's the case. Um, hearing it, uh, you know, directly, you're, you're, you're fortunate because, for people like Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry, who created rock and roll, really, they're the two most important rock guitarists in the world. Uh, that I'm because they they were playing blues and they were connecting rock between blues and rock and roll. Yeah, Chuck Berry turned blues into rock and roll. Bo Diddley turned blues into rock. See, right. so th those two cats are right in the middle. But I want you to get if you want to get your mind blown, Joe, get on your website, internet, whatever those things are called. Right. They got everything these days. I saw at nighttime uh, on television, Jeff Beck, who you mentioned, mm -hmm. and Howling Wolf, who you mentioned, right? The mm -hmm. two of them were playing Smokestack Lightning. Oh, wow. No, no, Howling Wolf was Tom Jones. Right. Tom Jones and Jeff Beck playing a Howling Wolf song. Yeah. And you got to see this to believe it, Joe. I mean, to me, that's like, that's the most far out freakiest thing. And they were nailing it, let me tell you. So... Tom Jones, Jeff Beck doing, doing Howling Wolf. Isn't that something? It's, well, you know. Mind-boggling. Like, Tom Jones does not get enough credit as a singer. You know, mm -hmm. he, he you know he's more typecast for the, the the hits that he's had. But as far as he can belt the blues, he can belt the, oh, yeah. the phone book. You know, anybody, He deserves being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as anybody else. I Absolutely. Mean, you, you name it, he can blow anybody off the stage. You know, and plus that voice of his, you know. Yeah. Nothing he can't cover. And Beck's that way on guitar. If Beck right. wanted to do a whole jazz album, he could do it. If he wanted right. to do, he did a, a, a straight uh, rockabilly rock and roll uh, album a few years back that was 
you know, with all due respect to my homeboy, Brian Setzer, it was as good as anything I've ever heard. You see, right. the both of those cats can do anything. Um, and, uh, you know, us mortals do what we have to do. <laughs> they do what they do. We do what we can do. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, like, you know, if you really get into like the, 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 the conversation about like, you know, people like Albert King and, and Freddie and, and all those guys, like they only had about maybe a dozen licks, mm -hmm. but they used them with devastating effect, you know, and, and it's just only a dozen. I'd like to have half a dozen. A like dozen that. is a lot, Joe. That's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Well, if you got 12 licks, you got 12 songs and then you got a set. <laughs> That's right. Well, we used to joke about we could you could do if you had three songs, you can do them slow, medium and fast. And you got yeah. pretty much a whole set at that. Exactly. Point. That's right. You know, Just if you're three, playing with three pieces. Yeah. You know, do you. Um, it's it's a different it's a different discipline being a power trio. And we were talking earlier about the fact that you tune down and mm -hmm. and and, you know, use the hollow body Gibson and you got the this filled out the sound. Right. You know? And that to me is what makes your record so special is because it's just this big, huge guitar sound and nothing else. And there's drums mm -hmm. and bass and the sax. But again, mm -hmm. it was just it, inherently it was a power trio. Well, you know, if you go back into history, uh, just about all those cats played those kind of guitars because, right. you know, be, I mean, there was Fender guitar, but I mean, John Lee Hooker played one of those kind of guitars, the F holes right. and all that. And I've seen pictures of, uh, well, Chuck Berry who started right. the, you know, he has a big fat sound with those three fifty fives that he plays. Um, and various artists I've seen over the years, they have these, these guitars and I go, that's how they get that big, thick, fat sound. Right. You know, it's, uh, you know, with, I, I used to say um, with, with the Fender guitars, I'd say, how do, how do they get the big sound? And someone said, well, the guys that use the Fender, they have the guitar player's greatest ally, volume. Oh, right. <laughs> said, okay. All right. So that's how, you know, Jimi Hendrix and, and Billy F. Gibbons do that. But if right. you have to play at a lower volume, like I did in the small clubs, I used that guitar and I had a small amp, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like a Princeton, which I turned up. Uh, loud, so I was still playing. It sounded louder than it really was. See what I'm saying? Um, yeah. But the guitar itself had a very, very full, thick sound, and, and it was economical. I couldn't afford anything else. <laughs> and to this day, I can't play any other guitar. I've tried and tried. You know, I said, "Oh man, I want to get a. You know, I got a Les Paul that I have no idea what to do with. I got right. a. I got a couple of Fender guitars. I said, "Oh man, I want to get that whammy bar, do that Jimi Hendrix thing." Right. Doesn't work for me. I said, "What the hell?" You know, and so that guitar is what I, without that guitar, I don't know what I would have done, Joe. Like, my jokes are not that good. They're pretty funny, man. You you, you got good material. You could carry it. All right, yeah. Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember what you paid for the original uh, ES-125 when you- $200. When you $200. Yeah, it was in a uh, pawn shop. Was it white at the time? No, it was Sunburst. Faded right. Sunburst. They yeah. all worked. They all yeah. and uh that guitar i mean it's like how you know because like bb king had a lot of lucille's i mean mm -hmm. like lucille i think he, he used to say i got 50 lucille's right. like somewhere and i'm like oh wow you know how many of the white ones do you have how many of the how many of the ESC? none anymore i stopped playing the 125s about two years ago right uh, i just wore them out they're just yeah. they just couldn't keep repairing them because it cost too much money and uh 
you know, but the style of the guitar, the hands, that's the only thing I could be. So Epiphone has come up. So I'm playing Epiphones now, but I have, uh, I have quite a few, but the 125s are retired. I mean, right. they just, I got everything I could. It's like saying I, I drive the Indianapolis 500 every year and I've got everything I could out of a Ford Fairlane right. <laughs> or, yeah, exactly. or Chevy Nova. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The guitars, let they, they let you know when they're worn out. I have yeah. I have a couple. Yeah. I have a telly yeah. that's like that. I did my last tour. Yeah. It just it, it, the, the the wood in a hollow body is good because it resonates like a violin. As right. it gets older, the sound, yes, it's good. But the mechanics of it, those are the things that break down, break down, break down. But you gotta say, but it still sounds like that because the, the like I say, a good violin they say is better with age. It's made yeah. with wood. And, you know, pianos are like that. And guitars are made like that. So, but I banged on the thing. Play, playing live is a whole different animal. So as time went on, I said, yeah, the wood is there, but the rest of it isn't. So yeah. you're just not reaching the audience, George. You're just not, you're only you're about halfway there. I said, oh. I said, we got to get a guitar so you get the whole audience listening. See, it doesn't fade. And then, the, then you're at the mercy of the PA constantly turning you up then you've got nothing but volume you don't right. have good sound good good tunes right. you know what i mean right. and our sound people say we we just keep turning you up and turning you up but once it gets past this 10th row um there's nothing happening you know right. you know if you ever take a chevy nova or a ford fairlane if you don't floor it mm -hmm. it stalls yes the 125 you don't turn it up all the way if you turn it on eight, it's, it's like turning on and off. There's no sound right. coming out. Yeah. You have to floor it to make it work. But if you floor it all those years, eventually it's going to wear out. It's going to wear out. Yeah. You know, I, I got into old cars a few years ago and I just was just like, oh, you know, this, is, this will be fun. I just like drive around Southern California. Every single car that I bought has ended up on a flatbed and I've been stranded on the side of the road. And it's like... <laughs> Well, if that ever happens, give us a call. We'll pick you up. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we'll exactly. So, you know, one of the things we used to talk about, and I, I have such a fond memory, is you, you, you went into detail about how you guys came up with the 50-50 tour, which was actually 51 shows in 50 days in 50 states. And I started thinking about it, and I said, I don't think I could, I could have lasted 20, even at 19 years old. I mean, it, that must have been quite a. Yeah, you would have made it, Joe. You would have. Uh, probably, yeah. You can't. The guitar is Joe Bonamassa's alter ego. It is. Okay. Yeah. You could tell me, at a nineteen-year-old kid, that someone said you got fifty days to play in a row and you're going to get paid for it, Joe. Mm -hmm. You would have made it. I would have right? done it. it did, exactly. Nobody probably... says you have to play for three hours every night. Right. You play for an hour, go to a compact show. And a lot of those states are very close to each other. I mean, they all are, but it takes the time to get from Massachusetts to New Jersey. You cover five states in a way. Yeah. To get exactly. from northern Montana to get down to southern Wyoming is a long drive. It's a long but, drive. You know, you're playing your guitar. I mean, that's what you're doing. And saying, you know, if I can't do this, uh, you know, what's, uh, what, what's the point if you Luke Eric played in 2,000 straight games, okay? Right, exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah. I'll leave it at that. So the one thing that we do differ on in opinion is you're a Mets fan. 
I I'm a Yankees fan. Yeah, I got the thing in my house with the autograph, what you wrote there on the thing, on the I, CD. I, I still I, got I, that. I thought, damn, I thought we were buddies, man. I, that hurt my feelings, Joe. So again, and and it's a testament to your loyalty to a team that has not brought home the gold since '86. Why the They're Mets not supposed to bring home the gold? They're the Mets, like the Destroyers. <laughs> we're not supposed to have triple platinum records, you know. You do, though we're the New York Mets, Three Stooges of rock and roll, you know. <laughs> but we're still here, you know. Right. The Mets right. aren't supposed they cre- they didn't create the wild card for the Mets. They created the second wild card for the Mets. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know, I remember them winning in '86. I remember watching it, and and I was like, wow, this is. You know, and I was at that point in time, my, my dad was like, you know, this could be the last time in your life that you see this, you mm-hmm. know. But at the time, the Yankees were terrible. You know, mm-hmm. they weren't winning anything. So I was like, OK, whatever. New York. Baseball, know, you yeah. know, I mean, you know, it's a funny game. I'm like, uh, I always say this, Joe, and this is I, I you got some pretty good quotes. I've heard you say some things that I I, I, I later stole. I mean, borrowed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Said, so say, why do you, why do you like the, why do you like the Mets? I say, listen, baby. I said, always pick a, a loser. You always get a good seat at the park. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Every time we would play Anaheim, if there was a game after soundcheck, I would just go there for an hour because just the mo- to me, it's the most relaxing sport to watch. You know, yeah, it it's, is. It, yeah. and it's got so many elements to it mm-hmm. and so much strategy. It's not just go well, just go up there and try to hit the ball. Yeah, you know, and a lot it's more like, to it than that. Yeah, it's one of the few games. It's one of the few games that the little guy can beat the big guy. Absolutely, that's rare. That's that's why I like the best of five series, is because the lesser team can eke it out. Mm -hmm. You know, generally a best of seven, the better team will win just by sheer attrition. It's better. It's better with five. You know, Joe Morgan kept saying over and over because I know because when the Mets beat the Reds, that's not fair because the best team didn't win. And I was thinking. It's not about the best team that won. It's the team that played best won. Right, right. And with five, a five-game series, it's much more intense. It's it's it's, it's only five games. You got to win three, or right. you know you can't last it out till seven. So the, when we watched the playoffs in the seventies and the eighties, uh, before it went to the, the, the uh, seven-game thing, four games, whatever, right. it was much more intense. You didn't want to miss a game. Yeah, you didn't want to because it was it was that tight. You know, um, so I'm, I'm with you. Uh, they, they would say, well, George, if you only want a five-game series instead of a seven-game series, you're not a baseball fan. I said, no, I am a baseball fan. That's why I'm saying it. Yeah. <laughs> it it's more intense. It's more, you know, you're more focused to watch everything that goes on. You know, I, I, I got to go pick up my laundry. It's the third game of the playoffs. There'll be four more games. I'll right. be back later. Right. And that that's the exciting thing. It's, you know, it, 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 again, it's not about the best team. It's like who played best that week, you know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. and, and, and every great team, even the, like the, well, that the happens great... in the world series, even, I mean, there's times in the world series that nobody thought the 46 Cardinals were going to beat the 46 uh, Red Sox. Okay. Right. Who thought the Pittsburgh Pirates were going to knock off the New York Yankees? Right. See what I mean? So yeah. it's, that's, that's the fun of it. That's the fun. That's why they make odds on these things, you know. Um, and I've said that happens that that happens that way all the time. You know, this team's got better stats. I've seen that and the others. Well, that's that's 162 games behind us. We have to worry about today. 
you know. Right. You know, Don Larson came out and pitched a perfect game. Who ever heard of Don Larson before that? Right. <laughs> it was funny. Um, this year we played Ruth Eckert Hall. You've played it a bazillion times down in uh, Clearwater. Yeah. And and great room. Love it there. And Bobby, the guy who runs the place, goes, hey, man, um, I got to just – can you sign an autograph uh, for uh, my friend David Wells? And I'm like, you mean the pitcher? And he goes, yeah, how do you know him? I go – I watched him pitch a perfect game. I go, where is he? So, you know, I, I meet him and, and, and I asked him about the perfect game and he was very honest about it. He goes, listen, I was out, I was out at a Saturday night live after show party the night before I didn't get home till 6am ended up sleeping a couple hours and went to the, went to the ball game, slightly hung over and pitched a perfect game. <laughs> and you're like, going, okay, well that makes, you know, and he was very honest about it. And I'm like, I'm like, wow, this, this guy, literally went up there 27 up 27 down mm -hmm. insane and i well, watched I said i asked him the same question when uh -huh. i met him yeah and this is how uh, that how great that game is and i've said these things to a couple other people all i said to david wells was this and this is this is great and he, he came up to me and said hi we introduced so all i said was so what's it like you mm -hmm. knew exactly what i was talking about yeah it's, you, know, you know, I mean, I asked Bernie Carbo that five years after the fact, five right. years. Right. And after the fact, we were hanging out. We've been hanging out all night. Didn't think twice about it. I just turned around to Bernie and said, Bernie, what did he throw you? He went fastball. Mm -hmm. He met in 75 World Series, the home right. run. He hit. Right. You know, they did say, well, say well, what do you mean? Who? What game? What person? You know, I said, David. What's it like? And he knew, dingo, where we, yeah. where we were coming from. All these ball players know that. Yeah, and you know, you think about how many pitchers there have been in the major leagues. You know, and so few have been able to achieve that. You know, and there was in that year, two Yankees did it. David Cohen did it the, the season after, and I watched that game too, and I was like, it's. Can you believe? Can you believe that Roger Clemens and Steve Carlton never threw a no hitter? No. That's right. That's that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And that's quite remarkable. And, and, it is, and Tim Linscombe threw two. <laughs> right, right. So, so go figure. Here's, here's a good baseball question. Is, like, to me, growing up in, in the 80s, watching baseball, being a fan of baseball, one of my baseball heroes was Pete Rose. Like, you know, he was just, he was this, blue collar, you know, you know, grinded out kind of baseball player who ended up making mistakes and now they won't let him in the hall of fame. Should they separate that? I know it's a controversial question, but it, it is, it bears asking because I think he should be in the hall of fame just for as a player, not as a manager, you know, if they want to put an asterisk by it, whatever, but he should be acknowledged for his contributions as a player. I think he has been. Oh, he has been. You've just been talking about him, right? Right. Well, then, that he's well, been acknowledged. I'm not the I'm not the Hall of Fame, though. Yes, but in your mind, he is one. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to say. There are so many people who recognize what Pete Rose has done. Millions and millions of people know what yeah. Pete's done with baseball and for baseball. Okay. Yeah. And I'd say 90% of them agree that he should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. 
Now, saying that, that that many people think that about him, think about some of the people that are in it and people are saying that guy shouldn't be in there. Yeah. <laughs> See what I mean? So it, to me, it's like, well, Pete, you've already arrived because millions and millions of people think that about, you, you know, um, you know, as far as his, his issues, he had some problems there. Um, I would have thought that, you know, look, Pete, let's put it this way. Um, when this was happening to you, why don't you sit down with some professional people and say, I have a problem. I have a gambling problem. Right. I need help and mean it. And right. so you get some help, get, get on the program, get off the gambling, and we will do everything we can to get you into the Baseball Hall of Fame. If you've right. got to admit your addiction, yeah. work for work on it, you know, and, and, and hopefully get the cure and right. say with, with the, that effort, why don't you put that effort into the same effort you had as getting on base? Yeah, right. And then people might take some, the man's doing everything he can, you know, right. and that, that might be an exception. But Pete being Pete has never really, you know, come up with that. He usually means to say, hey, Pete, when he said, well, these other guys took drugs. Well, these other guys did this. These other guys did that. And we're not talking about those other guys. What they did was not illegal. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. In a, in a massive conflict of interest when you're betting on games that you're mad. Yes, exactly. That's heavy duty, you know? Yeah. So I just think, well, you know, it's never too late, you know, you know, it's like someone said, listen, man, I got a, I got a weight problem. I got a drinking problem. Can you help me? I need help. Right. You know, I, mean, I would help him. Right. You know? So, yeah, but if enough people think he should be in a hall of fame, I mean, if 10 million people, 1 million people mm -hmm. thought Joe Bonamassa should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I'm one of them, if a million people thought that, wouldn't that be good enough for you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There you go. I, you know, speaking of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it, it, to me, there, there are just some just criminal omissions mm -hmm. in, in, in that roster that, you know, just starting with the band Free, you know, and, you know, yourself. I mean, you can't turn on the radio without hearing George Theragun and the, and, and the Delaware Destroyers on rock and roll radio playing hit after hit after hit of rock and roll songs. You know, to me, that's that's a no brainer. You know, it's like it it I don't understand what takes them so long for the acknowledgement, because I know to some people it means something. And a few of my friends who have now passed on was like, man, I just would, would have been nice if we were acknowledged for our contributions. A lot of a lot of those people were in the prog bands in the 70s. And well, you know how the uh, you know how in the uh, the all star game in baseball, when they said, uh, you know, the, the fans vote. Yeah. For the players for the all star game. Yeah. And it got controversial for a while there. And they said, well, who's voting? And they say, well, the fans vote. And. Sometimes it's this, that, and the other. And an Atlanta announcer said, why don't we do this to, to, for that situation? Right. Let everybody vote. This is America. Let the right. players vote. Let the umpires vote. The owners. Right. You know what I mean? And then yeah. that way, there's no discrepancy. There's no uh, controversy because let them all vote. So I said, well, everything like that, baseball hall of fame, blah, 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 blah. I said, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, whatever you call it, Jazz Hall of Fame, basketball. Yeah. Let everybody vote. You know, especially the fans, because of the ones buy the tickets and the records. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, you know, I don't know how these systems work. You know, I just, 
I just you know, I just go out there, plug it in, and let it rip. Exactly. I play I play Pete Rose style. That's right. <laughs> um, one of the things that uh, um, I remember watching was you. Oh, it's a killer set when you when you guys played Live Aid in '85. I watched mm. it on TV, and I thought you guys were the stars because it's like you had the fattest tone. You're playing blues, and I was like, "Oh, that's that's the that's the shit, right?" <laughs> and I think it was one of the first times I I'd seen George Thorogood in the Delaware Destroyers live. You know, mm. I, and, it was, and it was a big event because on ABC, oh, yeah, it was huge. I mean, like everybody was glued to. It's like. What was it like to to be there in Philly, you know, you know, back when it cable television, like everybody, everybody watched. It wasn't like, oh, we're broadcasting on Hulu. This was like tens and tens of millions of people were watching all at the same time. You know, did did you were you did you have that in the back of your mind when you walked out there or were you just like, fuck it, I'm just going to do a regular gig? Everything was going through my mind. Um, what really. Uh fit perfectly joe because mm. uh, yeah, you and i know each other pretty good but fit perfectly was our band was not the first choice so one of the other bands stepped out of it and then they went to another band and then they didn't want to do it so they came up with us so we were like it was like an all-star game that the guy said i'm not going to the game or i can't make it so they right. go back and say oh let's get this guy you know right. it's like the guy who um got the most votes to play third base in the all-star game in 89 was Mike Schmidt, mm-hmm. but he retired in like May, but he was still the leading voter. Right. For, so he couldn't, didn't play. So Howard Johnson was picked to play. Right. Now that's what happened to us. So right. I had, it was a pretty good chuckle. I said, we're not even anybody's second choice. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys went out and killed it. I mean, I remember, you know, like, sitting with my family going, wow, that, that you killed it. And, mm-hmm. and it was like, you know, that's back when it's almost kind of goes back to like Janice at, you know, Monterey pop. It's like, you're like, you know, that was, that was a worldwide thing. And, and, you know, all those great performances at like Woodstock and everything else, like those were career making performances, you mm-hmm. know? And I mean, cause at that point you guys were very successful selling a lot of records. Did you notice that, after that performance, like everybody knew George Therrick. I don't, I don't know because I never spoke to everybody. Right. Yeah, exactly. How am I supposed to know? Uh, I do know this. I said, well, we're going out there and if we're a, a, a substitute for one of the all-stars, I'm going to swing at every pitch because I probably right. will never get here again. Okay? Right. <laughs> and if I get on base, I'm going to try to steal. See? Yeah. So I just went out there and just went for it completely. Yeah. Yeah, because that's all you can do. It's it's like the few times that the I've been on the the the, the national TV like the the late night shows, mm-hmm. and they they let me sit in with the band. They never let me bring my band and do a song because that's for people with more TikTok followers than I. And 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 they're like, oh yeah, sit in the band, and then they give you the brief. It's like, okay, when we come out of commercial, you start playing. I said, oh, I know where the red light is. I said, yeah. when I see the red light, I'm playing everything I know in, yeah, in right. fifteen seconds. Exactly. I'm going to make that's an impression. A, and, yeah. Right. Well, that, that's the way I was with like our first two records. I didn't know if I was ever going to get this shot again. So I just let it all hang out because you never know. You know, you, know. You, you don't know if you were ever going to have that opportunity. Well, we'll do it next time. We'll get it next time. Well, sometimes there is no next time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and you guys 
came out, and I remember, if I forget this, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys were on Rounder Records, the first couple of albums. Mm -hmm. And it was like, it, it was like, what's Rounder Records? What's, you know, and it was like this explosion of, of you know, great blues. And, and I mean, your cover of, you know, Hank Williams moving on over was, to me, one of my favorite things you guys have done because it's just, man, it was such a gut bucket blues version. You just never, I never associate it for years. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize it was Hank Williams, you know, until I go, Oh, okay. But two completely different songs. How do you, how do you approach, how did you guys approach that when you were, when you were like taking, moving on over and like, how are we going to, we're going to do it? Like we, well, we figured it. if we had a Hank Williams song, which is a country song basically. Right. And, uh, if we put a like a blue slide guitar on it, yeah, with a rock and roll beat, mm -hmm. well, that covers a lot of territory. Yeah, <laughs> so we try to combine all those elements in that one song. And besides, I said, "Hey, man, you better hurry up and get this thing recorded because if you don't, Linda Ronstadt's going to do it, and you'll be out to dry." Right. Because <laughs> it's a great song. Yeah. You know, it's you know, I, I, I'm fond of saying to people, well, I'm fond of it, but if they ask me, go, "Hey, man." I didn't make those songs famous. Those songs made me famous. Yeah. That's, that's it in a nutshell. You know, you, you go up to somebody and you say, um, oh, uh, this is say, uh, I'm an actor. Oh, you're an actor. Oh, okay. Yeah. What's your name? You give them their name. They go, oh. And then you go, I was in the movie Rocky. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> you see? So usually the work precedes the artist. Not everybody can just walk in and say, I'm Frank Sinatra, I'm Miles Davis, uh, or whatever, Barbara Streisand or whatever. But for cats like me, I was like, no, the, the song made me famous, not the other way around. Well, I mean, the, the thing is, though, I remember having this discussion with you, and you were like, Joe, I'm an entertainer. And that always stuck with me. And I said, I go, correct, because bad to the bone. If anybody else cut that, it may not have been as big a hit. It was how it was the delivery vehicle. It was your vocal. It was the attitude. It was the snarl. It was the whole thing that made that song as big as it is. And I don't think anybody else but you could have delivered that with that amount of effectiveness. Because well, it's not. It's not. It's not supposed to be taken that seriously. Right. George Thorogood and Destroyer shouldn't be taken that seriously. <laughs> Rock and roll shouldn't be considered that. You know, right. Shouldn't be taken that serious. That's a. And they say, oh, well, you think you're this, you think I said, it's tongue in cheek. Don't you get it? Don't right. you, you know, that's what I do. You know, I'm, I'm a humorous in that style. And to, to our fans and people like that, they've caught that. It, it, it took a little while. I say, well, why is he telling all these jokes? What are they, you know, he thinks he's so bad, he's drunk all the time. I said, no, they're pieces. They're pieces of my act is what right. they are. And um, they're bits as a comic has a bit, right. you know, and that that's what, we've been doing since we really put the thumb I'm, I'm no guitar virtuoso i'm never going to be you know jeff becker or stevie ryan vaughn right but they're never going to be me either you see jeff beck plays the guitar doesn't have to say a word he's right. brilliant he's just you know and i said well i got to throw a little something else into the equation you know yeah. and that's just me anyway i was a big big comedy fan since i was a kid and yeah. i actually considered doing that before i started playing music I wanted to do that for a living, get involved in comedy. So, as uh, yeah. and I studied the comics the same way I studied guitar players, you know, uh, George Burns, Phil Silvers, um, 
Ann Southern, Eve Arden, uh, Lucille Ball, you know, uh, Red Skelton, Ernie Kovacs. I checked them all out, you know, right. uh, Jackie Gleason. And, and I was dawned to that. And then I was watching the TV one day and these cats came on with long hair and tight pants and they were singing. And the cat was playing the maracas. They were singing, I can't get no satisfaction. I said, that's it. It's over. My, it's over. my comedy <laughs> career is over. <laughs> yeah. That's not to say I can't still be funny. Yeah, exactly. You know, like like the comedian friends I have, they always tell me, he goes, you don't realize, Joe, because if you're into a bit, like I try to do five minutes, a, a, a bit about the town, just get the audience laughing. And then, mm-hmm. and there's nights where it bombs and it's like, okay, let's just get the, yeah. tell the drummer, let's count it off and move on. And, but with the, my comedian friends say, you don't understand. It's like, and everybody bombs. It's like when you're up there bombing, it's the longest 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's almost like boxing. It's like, mm-hmm. Well, it's only 90 seconds. It's three minutes. Yeah. I can yeah. survive for 90 seconds. Right. Those 90 seconds feel like 90 minutes mm-hmm. if it's not going your way. I mean, it's like, it's, it's a, it's a real art form, you know, yeah. you know, it's the hardest art form. Uh, the, the stand-up comics and they go out there alone to mm-hmm. be funny because if, especially if it's somebody you don't know, you immediately have a mental thought. They're not going to be funny. Try and make me laugh. You know what I'm right. saying? You're up against that immediately. And you feel kind of awkward about it. So that's why the, gr- the greats are so few of them, because they can, they can do that. Um, it's, it's not for everybody. And if Joe Bonamassa tells a joke or something, he's come up with a great song after it. A comic right. can't do that. They can't go over to the piano and sit down and play Over the Rainbow. You know, they have to keep going and find oh, yeah. something that's funny and stay with it. Um, so, yeah, if, you, if, if, if Joe or George says something, that's not working. Well, you got who do you love coming up? You yeah. got you know you got something coming up that's you know they're they're not right. going to throw rocks at you. So that's right. Like, I just enjoy it. That's the part of what I do. I'm saying I just like doing those things. And uh, the, the, the great blues acts I've seen and rock acts were very funny entertainers. Chuck Berry was one of the best. Two of the yeah. funniest guys I've ever seen on stage. I don't know if they meant to be when I saw them a couple times. One was Frank Zappa, mm-hmm. and the other was Peter Townsend. Right. And they said funny, witty things that right. were cool. Elvin Bishop has got a great act. I mean, he's like Harpo Marx with a guitar. Yeah. You know, he's just fantastic. Chris Isaac, brilliant live, real fun, real talent. Uh, all the blues acts were like that. The uh, Sonny Terry and Brady McGee, they had an act. Uh, yeah. Allie Wolfsband had an act. And I said, this is what you got to do. Nobody was funnier than Jerry Reed. No, underrated guitar player because he was so funny. They, yeah, they exactly. never looked at him. They never they looked at him. Concentrated on that, right? You know? But I thought I said, well, you got to have a little more going than just standing there playing playing the, the thing. Um, and I said, and except for it, with, there are exceptions. If somebody mm-hmm. just stands up there and plays and plays and plays all this stuff, usually to me it's pretty boring. Yeah, they don't say anything. They say something at least witty. Tom Jones is brilliant live, funny. You know, uh, the whole bit. You get the whole package with him. Um, it, it, you know, unless it's Jeff Beck, who you expect to do that. He's very, he's very bright. He keeps your attention. And yeah. he's got the best hair in the world. He does. Be- he Beck's does. got the best hair, right? Best hair. Best yeah. hair. And he's got that groovy guitar with the pegs underneath the, the, the six underneath. The, you know what I'm saying? On the headstock. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there, there are exceptions to that, that people can go out there and get away with just, all, all that, but there are very few. 
very few ones. And, you know, um, our sax player told us the other day, he said, he saw Jerry Lee Lewis come out one time and he came out on crutches. Right? Mm-hmm. And he sat down and he said, yeah, I tried out skiing the other day. I went skiing. Nobody told me I had to do it on snow. <laughs> he had the audience right there. See what right. I'm saying? He had them. Yeah, it's just like those Tim Conway Emmy acceptance speeches where he's thanking the golf courses and stuff like that. And it's like you just you just never know what they were going to say. But it was always de- it was the delivery that was mm-hmm. brilliant. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, I, I remember my my manager, his father used to manage Don Rickles. And every once in a while I would run into Don because he lived out here in California as well. And I would always sheepishly go, Mr. Rickles, my name is Joe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elliot's son, Roy Management. Oh, you're the blues man. And mm-hmm. I asked him about like, you know, I go, how do you come up with jokes? Just making a conversation because Don Rickles, hoping he wouldn't rip into me, you know? And he goes, listen, he goes, I don't tell jokes. I tell stories in a funny way. And when yeah. I heard that, I go, okay. That's that makes it. Sense to me. He's got it 100% correct. And you know. it's, that's yeah. a gift. Yeah, bourbon scotch and beer is nothing if it's not a funny story. Yeah. And by the way, don't sell yourself short. That Those fills in that song, when you're not playing the slide, when you're just doing all that stuff off of E, that's some badass shit right there. I had someone come to see us play for the first time uh, when we were in Australia. And there was a reviewer, and she said, I went to see this guy, Thoroughbred. And they said, well, what's the deal? And she said, he plays the meanest guitar and tells the worst jokes I've ever heard. And I went, bam, George, that's you. Stick <laughs> with that. But so at least they commented on. So you're right. You're like you do the math. You're like, hey, I thought it was pretty funny, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um before we wrap up, um, I just want to tell a story on the on camera of, of the night. I always cherish the night that I was an honorary destroyer and 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 there's two things i want the anecdotes i want to say a few nights before that i wore an eric clapton shirt on stage opening up for you and you you took the time the next day after the show and said listen don't ever wear anybody else's merch on stage because they're thinking about eric it was an eric clapton shirt it's like because now they're thinking about eric clapton so because i knew you at that point in time the next night I wore a destroyer shirt. <laughs> a well, that's promote. a lot easier. That's a lot easier than living up there at Clapton. <laughs> but, 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 you know, um, but the night it was in, I, I believe it was at the Celebrity Theater in Phoenix. I was just, I show up for sound check and they're like, hey, you know, can you fill in for Jim? I'm like, sure. And I will say this when, when, you know, because a lot of your songs were in B flat, you know, or C. Whatever, and that was that was my job was just to just keep mm-hmm. the that pulse. Keep that going. And I'm like, I think I can handle this. I'm not going to embarrass myself or 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 you know the destroyers and you know try to do the best I could. And I was cramming before the stage. By the third song, my left hand was was numb, <laughs> and by the end, by the end of the show, I was like, I was fa- I was faking it. You're hanging I, on. I was just hanging on for dear life but i'll always treasure that memory you know and and, and how's your you hand know, now I joe hated the fact that, 
it's it, after after 17 years it's, it's okay. finally it's, okay, it's finally right, cool, cool. <laughs> I, I can play the, the bar chords but um you know thank you for everything you've done for me and and your friendship and everything and you know it's one of those things where um i just again like i said earlier it, it was you and bb king that gave me a stage and advice and gave a shit about an opening act that that most people didn't and mm -hmm. and so i owe you a lot you know uh, you can have any of these fender amps if you want okay. I, I you know you owe me a lot okay no user gh is on the check joe <laughs> <laughs> i'll see you later brother george thank you very much this has been live from nerdville presented by graham brulot